Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Lionel Shriver. Shriver is an American journalist, author and spectator columnist. Her novel, We Need to Talk About Kevin, about a mother and her son who goes on to carry out a high school massacre, won the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2005. Her writing regularly touches on current affairs and topics that can, at times, be considered taboo. She has spoken up on cultural appropriation, suggesting that writers ought to be able to write from any perspective, rather than just the one they were born into. And she has also urged caution on writer diversity initiatives. So Lionel, thanks very much for joining us today. To begin on this podcast, we'd like to go back to your early life, so what you were doing before you were in the public sphere. And you've said that as a child, you were born in North Carolina to a very religious family. And by the time you were 12, on Sunday mornings, your father was literally dragging you into the car by the hair. Does that mean to say that a religious upbringing actually had the opposite of the desired effect on you? Well, it, it inoculated me against religion. I, I think I am incapable of converting to any faith. I think that that skepticism also extends to politics because I don't tend to join churches. I'm not especially party political. I'm averse to joining groups of any sort, come to think of it. So actually, having a faith system of any sort is something that you are naturally drawn away from. I like the idea of having principles, uh, and I like the idea of uh, having a coherent way of looking at the world, although I think it's important always to be able to make exceptions in the interests of practicality, for example. And what was it like growing up in a religious family where you are, in a way, the odd one out because you, you, you are not part of that sect? I wasn't the odd one out. Presbyterianism didn't stick with any of the three children in our family. Obviously, the technique of indoctrination through dragging the kids in the car by the hair didn't work very well. My brother and my surviving brother and I see perfectly eye to eye on uh, our lack of interest in religion and our impatience with it. And so did uh, my older brother and I while he was living, though in order to ingratiate himself with my parents, my older brother became a little painfully churchy toward the end. I never bought it. And did your parents keep trying uh, to make you see perhaps the error of your ways, or were they happy for you to have a more secular upbringing? No, they've certainly never been happy about secular children. And then one one thing you did was obviously you changed your name <laughs> from Margaret Ann to Lionel, and I think informally, not by deep, at least when you were 15. Was that just because you felt like it was something that reflected you better? I hated my name. Uh, and I, I've tried never to make a secret of what my real name was because I thought that would entice people to use it. But I just never felt like a Margaret, much less a Margaret Ann, which is what I was called in the household. And, you know, I just have a picture of that that person who's very prim and correct and a goody-goody. <laughs> it's, it's not me. Yeah, they sound very well behaved in Margaret Ann. Yeah. <laughs> Librarians. 
What's it like having to get people to try and call you by a different name who've known you since you were young and referred to by that? Because I imagine once you get to university, it's very simple. You just introduce yourself as as Lionel and it's done. But at the kind of teen point, uh, did people listen to your request? Well, of course, my parents thought for 30 years that I was going through a phase. (laughs) But... I slyly chose to change my name when our family moved to cities. And anyone who wants to do the same, I recommend it. It's, it's a successful technique. So I wasn't dealing with a large number of people who already knew me as Margaret. <laughs> and then uh, growing up, did you always want to be a writer? I did, since I was seven. And you went on to study at Barnard College, Columbia. And was that where you had a, a, probably a chance to really explore that option? I don't know how much my uh, university education made much difference in my development as a writer. I think just as a a lot of younger people do, mostly I wanted an audience at that time. And that's, you know, you you go to these workshops and you have other people reading your work. And, you know, you don't take seriously what anyone says. And I still don't. (laughs) But but it's at least an opportunity to have someone else read your work, even if it's only 15 of your peers. I guess speaking as a journalist, I always thought that journalism seemed a slightly less daunting profession than writing books, because although you might put a lot of effort into pitching a blog, at the end of the day, it is 600 words. Whereas if you wrote an entire novel and then it was rejected, that would be slightly harder to deal with. Do you think that's fair? Well, I don't know about that these days. I mean, an awful lot of journalists may not expressly face rejection, but they often face unemployment. (laughs) So it's become almost as brave to decide you want to be a journalist as it is to decide you want to be a novelist. I would say, I think nowadays, at least I would say journalists and aspiring novelists, they have a lot of platforms they can try and get their work out on, thanks to, you know, Maybe maybe it's a blog, maybe it's a type of podcast to kind of market themselves. When you know, the trouble being that everyone else is doing the same thing at the same time, so we have a surfeit of content. It's still very competitive. And you, before we talk about Kevin, which I suppose lots of people say was your breakthrough piece, how did you find the process of getting published? I found it surprisingly easy. It didn't feel that way at the time. It it now looks that way to me looking back on it. Um, I I have enormous sympathy for anybody who's trying to get a novel published these days because what might seem the the means of greater access uh, is actually becoming an impediment. That is, in order to get your work read by a publisher, you obviously need an agent, and it used to be that uh, well, you'd make, you know, four or five photocopies of your book. It was bulky. It was expensive. Uh, and then you had to post them to agents. And then you had to include a self-addressed, self-addressed stamped envelope. That was expensive. In other words, you couldn't really afford, literally, to send out more than one, say, four copies and you would wait to get them back. Well, that kept the volume down. But now all the submissions are by email, and they're they're digital, and people can literally submit to hundreds of agents at a time. And that sounds fun and convenient and, and efficient, 
but it means everyone else is doing the same thing, and these poor agents are inundated. You are lucky if anyone over the age of 12 ever reads the first page of your manuscript. I mean, it's, it is almost impossible. I have followed the fate of uh, more than one friend of mine, and they have been, you know, they have found the process unavailing even with very good books. Do you think you would have struggled if you were coming up in this current climate? Of course I would have. Anyone would, without being freakishly lucky. And then looking at, we need to talk about Kevin, you said previously that you've written several other novels by that point and you see them as all being of a similar quality. But there was something about that topic that really tapped Mm -hmm. in. Um, What do you think that was? Well, it had something to do with women wanting, uh, women especially, but men also wanting to talk about how parenthood is not always a bowl of cherries. It doesn't mean that parents didn't didn't love their children, but they wanted to express exasperation, disappointment, sometimes just boredom. And then there are other people who were eager for reasons to justify their ambivalence about children and maybe a decision not to have them it was it was a time I don't I have no idea why but that that ended up being the main topic that everyone wanted to talk about whereas when I set out to write the project I imagined that it would be timely because it was uh, talking about the school shooting phenomenon so so you felt that actually the motherhood element rather than shootings is what captured absolutely the, the irony being is I don't have any children, and I really have no idea what I'm talking about when I I write about being a mother. It's all made up. It's all conjecture on my part, but somehow I got away with it. Well, some of the concerns, though, when you talk about, I suppose, within that novel, the concern a mother might have about whether or not to bring a child into the world, was some of that tapping into anything you felt was a pure trying to think, put yourself in another perspective? I'm much too selfish to think in those terms, <laughs> so uh, I didn't. Um, I didn't decide not to have children because I was worried about climate change and and they, they were going to have a oh, perhaps a wetter life. <laughs> that's than a, I that's did. a thing now, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, it's just that I didn't want anyone else in my house. So now moving on to the other theme of that book, so gun control. You said in the past that you're a little embarrassed to be touted as an authority on school shootings now and will apologise in advance for asking you a question to do with that. But previously, in 2007, you asked how many mass killings can the American public witness before it gets serious about gun control? Now, since then, we have had the Sandy Hook massacre of children in 2012 and we've also more recently had a massacre in New Zealand. So what do you think the answer to that is? (laughs) I don't have one. I mean, yeah, I support greater gun control in the United States. I'm ultimately, as a writer, more interested in the initiating malice than I am in the the whole gun control thing. And, you know, it's under-observed that I did not write about a school shooting per se, and I did that on purpose. I I didn't want to initiate a, a torch another torturous conversation about gun control in the US but i am interested in the origins of evil and what makes people feel that way that moves them to do that now that's intriguing and what's it like inside someone's head 
and what's it like to be the mother of someone who has that in his head? You know, that those kinds of questions intrigue me more. I am not a policymaker or a politician, and I don't know what the answer to gun violence is. There's a lot of debate when you, as you were saying, the motives behind people who do that when it's covered in the media. You know, sometimes, for example, the Andre Brevet case, it seems to, there are people who do copycat attacks, for example. And I was wondering, do you think that the way the media sometimes covers these things can encourage more to do the same? Do you think that taps into the psyche or is it a bit of a sideshow? Oh, I think the media is a large part of the puzzle, but again, I don't think the answer to the fact that the media is a large part of the puzzle is obvious. Because, yes, we cover these things too much. We in, inadvertently give the, the shooter a certain amount of glory. We mostly give them attention, and we're really fascinated by them, and we want to know all about their past and and what moved them to do this. What are you going to do, pass a law that you can't write these articles? I mean, I believe in freedom of press, and I don't, I don't see how it's possible to constrain people's curiosity about these people. And the media is going to go out and satisfy th- that curiosity to the best of its ability. So I don't, I, you know, I can see how there is some cause and yeah. effect if these people didn't get any attention, didn't get any press, and it were, were all just very ho-hum, then it would be much less appealing because one of the things that's driving this is is a, a desire for acknowledgement, you know, a desire, you know, I am here. You have to recognize me and my experience and my reality. An urge that, that leads some people to shoot up the school and other people to write novels. Right, so it's. Yeah, I think it's very, very deep in the human psyche to to try to be recognized by our fellows, and this is a particularly warped form of it. But I, you know, you'll remember, um, or maybe you don't. <laughs> kind of on the young side, <laughs> when um, Jerry Adams was banished from the airways, you know, Margaret Thatcher said we don't want to give him the oxygen of publicity, and then so we went through this ridiculous pantomime where you had newscasters who would pretend to be Jerry Adams. They'd actually do imitations of his accent and talk over talk over clips of him with the sound off. It was hilarious. And, of course, it made Thatcher look ridiculous. On other topics you've covered in your various novels, I mean, you've been critical to the U.S. healthcare system, you've written about obesity, and I was wondering... Do you feel that now, given the success of previous novels, you have free reign on what you write about? Do you ever have to pitch hard to a publisher or is the ball very much in your court? Oh, the ball's in my court. I don't have my publisher telling me what to write about. I mean, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) So there's nothing that you can't write about? I wouldn't say that. It's, it, it is indeed, it's more complicated than that. So I, I do not feel perfectly unconstrained. I try to act in an unconstrained manner, but we live in a constraining time. And that's, of course, a, a lot of what I write about in nonfiction. And that starts trickling into my fiction also. Yeah, because I was going to mention, obviously, your novel Big Brother, a novel which was inspired or 
related to your brother who you mentioned earlier who passed away you've spoken a bit about libertarian values in the past and I was wondering we're having a that was on morbid obesity and your brother passed away from that and I was just wondering because we're having a big debate at the moment in the UK about what role for example the NHS and public health should have when it comes to tackling these issues like obesity what role the state should play and I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. well I am not big on social engineering I think it doesn't work among other things especially in something as personal as how much you eat I wouldn't support the NHS uh, restricting access to medical care because you've had too many hobnobs I, I just want the NHS to, to do its job. Now, I know obesity is a, a big financial burden for the service, but I don't think it's uh, the NHS's business to, to solve that problem. They can give all the nutritional advice they want, and they do. But They're talking of uh, reducing pizza sizes you can get in restaurants. And then you can just buy two. <laughs> That's, that was my immediate response yeah. to getting around the problem. Yeah, I'm, I get tired <laughs> of these decorative measures to to make ch- children, for example, slim down, and you know all the stuff about the advertising. And I just I don't think it works. Now, as we mentioned in the introduction, you've made the news in recent months, years, uh, for some things you put in your spectator column. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of those was something Fraser, the editor, then wrote about in his Telegraph column, <laughs> saying how happy he was to have you write for the magazine. But it related to this Penguin policy of hiring authors based on whether they reflect a diverse society. And I think you urged caution on the issue, suggesting, you can probably put it better myself <laughs> than, than me, that maybe that wasn't the best way to judge whether someone was a good writer would be their background. You received quite a backlash from it. And I was just wondering, looking back, what kind of you took away from that experience? Did it make you reconsider anything you'd written? Did it make you more sure about concerns on that? No, it didn't make me reconsider anything I'd written, including that column. I mean, to review... (laughs) Uh, Penguin Random House had just circulated this posturing email to all the literary agents of their authors proclaiming that by 2025 they were planning to have both their staff and their authors list perfectly reflect the proportions in the UK population at large in relation to gender class, sexual preference, race, ethnicity, and disability, and I've probably left one out. Now, I didn't just urge caution. I made merciless fun of that policy. It's not uh, practicable, and it is not in the interest in choosing good books to publish. It's also not even in the interest of choosing competent staff. I have opposed quota systems and affirmative action since it was first brought in in the United States when I was about 16 years old. It just struck me as wrong to install a new form of injustice to solve a problem of injustice. And it's just, on the face of it, ridiculous. And I I make no apologies for that position. 
Now, my takeaway on that experience was it doesn't matter what you write because it will get twisted into what people want you to have written, the better to attack it. So that what I just described was not what was iterated on social media. It was twisted around to say that I was, you know, I opposed diversity in publishing and that I just wanted to save the, the writing of novels for white people. And, you know, what are the chances that someone with an IQ above 60 would write that now? So, I mean, you know, it was dismaying. I, I am always dismayed when words no longer function because, you know, that's my business and that's, it's, it's words' ability to communicate and not just make sound is what makes them valuable and important. And if it doesn't work anymore, if people can simply project onto anything you write what they want to read, then, then, there, then, it's, then language has become dysfunctional. Do you think there is a diversity problem in the media in terms of the publishing industry? Oh, I think statistically there may be a small shortfall. I haven't made it my business to study up on the statistics. I think that they have recently improved. If anything, in a lot of areas, there's been an excessive bending over backwards. This isn't politic to observe, but if you look at any number of uh, awards, shortlists and long lists, minorities are overrepresented on a statistical basis. Um, you touched on social media and where the, often we get Twitter storms. And as you're saying, with that piece, that's where it really appeared to snowball. You've always been quite critical of joining social media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm guessing your opinion on that hasn't changed. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Do you think social media has a negative effect on debate? Because lots of people would say it's actually good because more people get a voice, but you do obviously run the risk with that mob mentality. Well, it's not just a, just a risk. That's what's been happening. So it doesn't. we don't have to theorize. And it does seem to drive arguments into polarization. The people who make the most impact are the most shrill so uh, it doesn't lead to compromise and understanding. It doesn't reward thoughtfulness or nuance. And so what, what's to like? And then just to end this podcast, we do just a few quick fire questions. Oh, <laughs> you, you look delighted at the prospect. <laughs> the first, I mean, you might have answered it, was just how do you relax? I mean, other than not being on Twitter. Oh... <laughs> uh, in the summer, I play a lot of tennis, and I watch too much TV all year round. <laughs> what type of shows? Are we talking light or heavy? Oh, both. But, you know, I, for example, I've been enjoying that show Cheat. That's the one I'm watching I'm right now. Absolutely obsessed with Cheat. Right? I just watched, finished the entire show. Okay, I haven't finished it yet, so yeah. shut up. <laughs> um, but I also have this weird soft spot for young Sheldon. Mm-hmm. Which is ridiculously light. <laughs> at the Spectator, we spend a lot of time talking about Brexit. We try and do it at least three times a day. I was just wondering, at this point in the Brexit, pre- only three. <laughs> I know. I need. We need to up our targets. You're lying. <laughs> at this point in the Brexit process, what do you think would be the ideal outcome? Well, the ideal outcome and the real outcome are now miles apart. <laughs> what I mean, I know it's naive of me. But I did support leave, and I thought that meant achieving 
economic and political independence. So you have a congenial relationship with the EU, but you are not in the single market or the customs union. And you're not ruled by the ECJ, and you're a country. But apparently, that's pie in the sky. (laughs) What's the best advice you've ever been given? Get on with it. With that, last question. Looking back at your career so far and where you are, what would you like your legacy to be? Gosh, that takes me a moment. I fervently hope that if anyone is reading my books in the years after my death, that my jokes still seem funny. (laughs) Thanks very much, Lionel. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. And if you like this podcast, why not subscribe? You can find all the episodes if you just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash balls. And that will also lead you to the iTunes store, where if you really like it, you could leave a review. And they include interviews with Andrea Ledsom, Emma Barnett and Sarah Baxter of the Sunday Times. And we also have an offer you may have heard of if you've ever listened to a Spectator podcast before. And that is 12 issues for £12 along with a £20 John Lewis voucher, which is also valid in the supermarket Waitrose. Uh, Just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.